0: Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects 4th Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The Talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the Fandes Ecla European Café Society being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered.
1: Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm India I am the assistant editor of Dazeen, and uh, my panel, are are the panel in place? Do you want the panel on the tables or scattered about? We'll we'll get mics. Okay, fantastic. You will get mics. Um, Okay, so uh, there's just like a couple of points um, I wanted to open with. uh, So Rob on the door has told me that a number of people have already messaged him tonight and said that they can't come because they are working late. Which is kind of, <laughs> uh, I think, says something. Um, obviously, you know, seven o'clock is an early start for, for architects for their after work activities. Um, and also, this is the first time I've seen the great artwork that uh, these guys had made. And um, before, I just kind of seen it and it was this carrot, and I hadn't realized that there's this great architectural ruler underneath is the stick, which I think is quite apt as well because we talk a lot about the carrots of architecture um, and we don't really talk about the stick. Uh, so I think it would be interesting to, to get into that. Um, so in my work for Dezean, and I guess the reason why they chose me to chair this, um, we've covered a lot of stories about internships, particularly about the state of kind of architecture education and people have been pretty, like, open and honest um, with sharing their stories about some of the kind of shocking practices that happen in the industry. Um, so uh, that's why I'm here. I've also got, um, and guys, if you can, like, wave when I, when I introduce you, because um, you guys are going to get involved as well with talking to the panel. Um, we've got Fiona Scott, who is um, from Gort Scott. Fiona is an architect and founded Gort Scott with friend Jay in 2007. Um, And since then, the practice has grown to be about 30 strong. She is one of the founding members of the London Practice Forum. And she's one of the May's design advocates and is involved with the Good Growth by Design program. Um, And we've also got Sarah Castle. And Sarah is the founding director of, oh, I'm probably gonna say this wrong, If Do. No, that's that's right, that's good. so uh, they're a multi-award-winning architecture practice based in Bermondsey. And uh, Sarah is the founding member of Part W, an action group of women campaigning for gender parity across the built environment. And from 2015 to 2019, Sarah was the London Chair for Urbanistas, a network devoted to supporting women working in the built environment. And we've got Katie and Curtie. Give us a wave, thanks guys. Um, They are from United Voices of the World, uh, the section of architectural workers, and I've got a statement to read for these guys. Um, United Voices of the World, section of architectural workers, or SOAR for short, is a newly formed grassroots trade union for architectural workers in the UK. As architectural workers, members of SOAR collectively take action and fight the negative impacts of architectural work on workers, wider society, and the environment. Katie and Curtie are here today on our panel as members of SOAR. They are not elected spokespeople and are so speaking in a personal capacity. And then um, we've got Tyan Marston, who's over there. Uh, London-based American designer Tyan Marston is the founding director of Phase 3, With over 25 years as a practitioner, Tyen set up Phase 3 in 2012 as an alternative practice within the field and one that could inspire others, clients and the architects themselves, to make generous and meaningful work. From printed matter, small-scale developments and hotels, to museums and master plans. Um, So, guys, uh, I've got a few little things to kick us off. Um, And I think... Abuse is a very interesting word because we are beginning to kind of accept into common practice and conversation um, the different kind of forms of abuse but we mainly talk about it in terms of partner abuse or domestic abuse or abuse within friendships and families and we don't really extend this definition to work Um, and uh, I think there are quite a lot of Similarities, if not the kind of exact same thing. Um, so, without being flippant, I have printed out a couple of points from the NHS for the definition of emotional abuse. Um, but I'm switching in your your boss uh, instead of your partner. Um, so we'll just see if these like resonate with people. Um, so, uh, does your boss belittle you or put you down? Um, Does your boss blame you for the abuse or arguments? Does your boss deny that the abuse is happening or downplay it? Is your job isolating you from your family and friends? Does it make unreasonable demands for your attention? Does it control your money or not give you enough to buy food or other essential things? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm not going to make anyone raise their hands if they think they've been abused at work, but I think um, in, <laughs> in architecture, um, especially at the kind of early stages, um, such as at university or internships, people are put in these very vulnerable positions, and you have to be living in a big city to work for a big practice. So, often, you really do need the money, um, even if it's not that much. Uh, so, when we've covered... Um, internships. Uh, we, we've had a mixed response from our commenters, um, and I'm kind of assuming here that no one on the panel is going to be arguing for abuse in architecture. This is a discussion about abuse in architecture and the structures that kind of uh, create it and help it permeate and like what we can do to stop it. Uh, so I thought I'd borrow a couple of the commenters to, um, to kind of give us some opening statements that I'm going to throw out to the panel, and you can kind of Discuss whether you agree. Um, So, what's this one? Students really need to get over themselves. They're not worth half as much as they think they are. I know many people who did unpaid internships and have had very successful careers based on the prestige of working for those companies. Also, many who have done a couple of weeks' internships and made a lot of it more than it was worth. And then also... People are obsessed with getting paid for every single solitary thing they do. They've forgotten the wealth to be had in simply working in a studio, picking up on real-time business tips, and knowing resources and making connections. That's worth more than a paycheck. (laughs) I was a design student in the mid to late 70s, and we begged for internships. There were none. The schools did not participate in any internship program for designers, Unpaid internships would have been taken on by many who have valued them without the paycheck. It's part of the process. So, uh, yeah, panelists, anything you want to say to the design commenters? <laughs> yeah, if you push it up and then. This is working. Great, thanks, Curtie.
2: Um... So there were two comments. Get over yourselves. You're a bunch of snowflakes, basically. And uh, why do you want to get paid? I mean, two, two comments, I suppose. First of all, the, the kind of whether people nowadays somehow are more prone to um, den- you know, denouncing the abuse uh, as previous generations. We, I'm just probably going to state something that's quite obvious, but the, the, the issue, I suppose, with... Uh, P- you know, potentially it being a problem with denouncing the abuse is that you're obviously hampering the diversity of the profession right? because not everybody can I suppose put up with the kind of abuse that the people who make these kinds of comments feel like you have to go through so um, we feel like it's quite important to just recognize the bigger picture and kind of say well if you kind of accept that it just means that only certain kinds of people can become architects and um, sort of other comment about the obsession about getting paid um, it's true that the abuse, essentially, from our point of view, as a union, actually, is um, that it very much devalues our labor, and that's what we're sort of fundamentally trying to... Well, one of the things we're trying to fundamentally fight, fight against, I think. Um, and we just live in, a, in an architectural culture that just doesn't really see time or as, as work. And we're very keen to refer to our members as architectural workers as opposed to, say, architects or assistants to kind of really reinforce this idea of... Of its labor, its time, where we're working here, and this is worth money.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, some really interesting points there, and I'm always a bit shocked when more senior people would argue that uh, you know an intern's not valuable, uh, or the client's not paying us enough, so you know we can't really like pay everyone on the project. And then it's kind of a question of like, well, aren't you devaluing yourself? Um, would you like to continue that thought? Yeah. Uh, hello? Does that work if you push it up?
3: Yeah, like that. Hello. Good evening. Like your entertainments during your <laughs> meal. But um, as an employer, I feel kind of on the spot by those <laughs> um, remarks. Um, I think two forms of abuse in architecture stem from expecting people to work too long hours and not paying people enough and I think that they're, they're, I see those as really big threats to our business and our industry and our culture and so they're things that we take really seriously but I also you know, I don't want this to turn into some kind of virtue signalling thing but um, I think that those two issues stem from All of the stuff around fees and whether or not architects can command the fees that they need to do the work that they want and think they should be doing. Um, But also around, frankly, business management, Um, because I think a lot of architects operate in a bit of a uh, sort of cultural bubble and maybe don't understand or don't educate themselves as well as some other industries do about business practices. Um, And so I've I've got some sort of questions that I'm interested to know what people think this evening around those, which are probably why architects are so bad at communicating and sort of articulating and defining in metrics even the value of what it is that they create so that they can charge fees for it in the way that a lot of other industries charge more for the type of professional work that gets done. Um, But also why architects see see themselves as both creatives and businesses um, in the way that a lot of other industries don't, where, say, in tech, you will have the creative and the business. You'll have the sort of tech, creative, and the business manager. And there's no expectation that the creative can run a business and and take it, you know, make it work. Um, So, yeah, I think that uh, like, as, as, so from my perspective, those seem like they, those seem like the big sort of top-down issues that trickle down in some businesses to bad behaviours. Um, I sort of feel I felt very um, relieved and happy on on New Year's Day when we um, published the London Practice Forum Charter because it kind of, it starts to, ha- to deal with some of those issues. And one of the reasons that we got together as a group of practices was to try and define that value um, of what it is that we do better so that we can actually explain to clients better why you know, why they should pay us what we need. And that is a sort of full spectrum from the way that we run our businesses and the way that we attract the best talent <coughs> through, um the way that we, you know, we manage our studios to um, best technical practice and the social value that we create in, the, you know, in the projects that we do. But as a cottage industry, where you know we're, we're sort of seen as a medium-sized practice now, with sort of 30 people, and it's really hard to find the resources to measure and document and kind of interact with the industry and do do all of the things that we might want to do to change the way things are. But together. You know, as a group of, of people, we can start to document the outcomes of our projects um, in ways that that are sort of measurable and definable. And um, so we're, you know, that's the beginning of a process for us, and that's uh, something that we're trying to do about it. And
4: um,
3: think... picking up on that
5: because, um, like. We've been having a bit of a chat earlier this evening about what the crux of the issue is, and it's, of course, like, the fact that we're architects and we're all artists and we're trying to produce this beautiful work. Um, And actually, you know, in 100 years' time, when we're all dead, what's there? The building's there. So does the process actually matter? I mean, does it? Like, or is it the case that what we're doing now should be representative of the social change that we want to see, of the kind of the way that we treat each other should... Should be good and so we want to make architecture that's representative of the society that we want to see and therefore things like unpaid internships shouldn't exist because if we start to do things like that, if we say that the value, that that we don't value people and we don't value the process, we end up in a situation where the architecture we're producing may be beautiful but it certainly isn't representative of who who we want to be. Uh, I, I think... And maybe I'm speaking on behalf of a very kind of liberal elite, which architects seemingly are anyway. Um, But it's a really difficult one because then at the same time, as Fiona was saying, you know, I run a business with my business partners and we're not competitive. So if we say we're going to, Conform to the EU Working Time Directive, which we do, um, and we're part of the London Practice Forum, and we've committed to that. Like, how do we compete against other practices? Like, if we're respecting people's time and respecting the input that people have in these projects, that people are professionals and they have to discharge their duties, and that's all really important but like how are we supposed to win the big prestigious competitions because the only way that that can happen is by trying to run an incredibly efficient business which really realistically as fees get squeezed more and more and more we don't have time to do the big lovely museum competition in like finland or some beautiful like uh, other nation where like and um, perhaps Cultural practices are slightly different. I'm not saying Finland, but like other, other, like particularly outside of the UK, where internship, unpaid internships are more prevalent. How do we compete against that? Who's doing the work in our practice when we've got to pay? We've got to pay people. So, like, what's the balance? I don't know what the answer is. I mean, and we're certainly always working hard to try and w- find that solution. But it's very difficult to run an efficient practice and also be the kind of lauded super practice that that as you know most people respect and look at. And design all the time
1: i mean this is the kind of uh, the problem that we we sit at with architecture is, uh, is between like the arts and business like a uh, building is beautiful and everyone should be surrounded by beautiful buildings but also people are making a lot of money over buildings and there are a lot of people who make a lot of money out of this industry <laughs> and the fact that it's not coming to architects and that that kind of work isn't valued in the system because we are, you know, under late capitalism that doesn't value the arts and a government that really doesn't value the arts. Um, But I think, you know, having... It would be interesting to know what you guys think as business owners. What do you think of having, like, a union of architecture workers? Because with the history of trade unions and that idea of give us bread but give us roses, you know, we want... We want to be paid, but we also want to value beauty in an ideal society that we should be striving towards even though the system is, like, grinding us down. I
6: think it's a ridiculous idea to think that we can't have both of those things. And we've been told that we can't have those two things simultaneously, and we've bought the bullshit. So I have this presentation Mm -hmm. that I give to... I give it to part three, I give it to part one, I give it to first year, and it's about value. And I think... We work in an industry that one third of the British GDP is in construction. And our fees are a small little sliver of that that economy. And if we were to double our fees simultaneously together, it would have zero impact on the economy. And I think that we've completely been taken for a ruse by developers, by people who are holding the purse strings. And we've done it because we're obsessed with this idea of beauty and that beauty and economy cannot go together. And I believe that if we, if we really want to shift our cities and we want to make more beautiful cities, they have to come from a place of beauty. And if we want that place, we have to inspire younger generations to create from a better place, not from a place of being told that they have to work longer hours, work more, work harder, it's not enough, because actually, that doesn't create something better. That just creates something a little bit more. And I think we have to kind of, there's like a cycle. So in your, in the, what you read out, but the thing is, is about that, what you read, is that's a cycle of abuse. So, and I've been through the entire cycle of bu- abuse at this point. I've been through architecture education. I've worked in horrible practices. I've taught in architecture. I've been a practice owner, and it's kind of... But I think the practice owners have to start breaking it, but also from the bottom. So you have to push against your employer to do a better job, to get better fees for the project, so that they can pay you a better salary. And so there's this kind of, like, it's not one thing or the other, but it's actually completely linked together. And I think it actually has to be a collective process of breaking the cycle. That's my rant, you know? (laughs)
1: No, I think you're definitely right. There's definitely an element of kind of intergenerational trauma happening here where people are like, well, this happened to me, and it was really shit for me coming up, so I've got to make sure it's, like, shit for everyone else because that's how the system works. Um, But I think what uh, Kirsty brought up in um, that first point is really interesting because uh, if this abuse is happening, and I agree with you that, like, practice... Um, leaders should be the ones, like, joining in the cycle-breaking. You lose um, people at such an early stage, especially, you know, we've seen the figures from Reba about women and people of colour entering the education system, and, like, women particularly are almost overrepresented in the first few stages of architecture, but then they begin to drop, and that is that kind of abuse cycle, those long hours... Um, you know, the system is built by the people who it benefits, and there have been, like, a lot of, you know, architects of the past who are very kind of, like, homogenous from one particular sector of society (laughs) Um, that, you know, it benefits them, and they may not drop out from abuse. Um, But
6: that's that's... why it's good to push up from the bottom, too. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to have to come from the younger generation that's going to start saying, I want something better than this. And they're going to have to start responding to it because if you leave that practice, because you know some of these practices that are quite abusive, the younger generation, some people will go to them, but some people are like, mm, I don't need to do that. And I think that people are a little bit more switched on with the younger generation, more than when I was younger. I was like, how much am I going to have to work for free? I mean, I arrived to New York and they were like, Every job interview I went to, they were like, you've got the job. And I was like, oh, great, thank you. This is a wonderful job. And they're like, but it's free. And I was like, well, I'm, I can't work for free. Like, I, and I, that was because of necessity. But like, it has to kind of push, I believe, from the, the bottom. And that's, that's a positive change, I think.
1: Yeah. Although I did read an article in The Economist last week that said that apparently millennials... Um, are, like, the least likely to change jobs and we're staying in jobs for, like, two years or longer when really you should be, like, chopping and changing to improve your career. So, um, but, yeah, no, I hope people would be able to walk away from an abusive work situation. I think that's often what traps you. If you are, like, well, this is terrible, I'm getting underpaid and they're treating me horribly and my personal life is going up in smoke, but, you know, I can't just quit because I've got to pay my rent. But
3: do people really think that it's... Completely systemic in architecture that we can't afford to pay people to do good work because I, I, there's not my, it's not my experience. I think there's the, the, the sort of it's tired, but the "work smarter, not harder" maxim. It's you know it's so far touch wood. You know it's all worked for us, and our, you know we don't win every competition we do, <laughs> unfortunately, but. You know I, I kind of think that there's something about the hermetic nature of architecture where you sort of build mythologies around what what a really great competition entry looks like or how much work you need to do to do a really great to, to, to do a really great competition entry. What most clients want is just is for you to understand them and for you to articulate that you 've understood what they want, and that doesn 't necessarily take a thousand hours of rendering quite a, and, and I think you know we've sort of seen examples where actually it's been a sketch that's won over a client, or I I think, you know, I I kind of think that there's not enough sort of engagement with um, either with clients or with people in other sort of industries or other sort of related professions to, to, to kind of understand how we do good work without falling into this trap of like doing ridiculous hours. When we've done competitions, sometimes we've shown images or shown work to people, like to friends in, in other, I don't know, in, in, other, in, source, yeah, in other industries, who've given us feedback that, some, that are kind of high, expensive renders. They don't even necessarily like them, and they prefer the ones that we've kind of thrown together as a sort of test in-house. And you sort of, I don't know, this kind of yeah, this sort of, mythologizing of Think, of hard work.
1: Maybe that's really like that beyond important. architecture though, because we've got like the tech bros coming out of Silicon Valley who are like, I get up at 2 a.m. and I have a smoothie and I meditate for an hour and I go to the gym and then I like schedule in sex with my wife, and then I like go to the office and then I read an entire book in a day. Like we architects are almost, you know, having to compete in that world where work has become a kind of religion. And,
5: uh, And I think it's really interesting what you... Well, certainly, like, what Fiona was saying about um, this kind of uh, thing in practice. And, yeah, we're the same. Like, we hope that we do good work and we pay people well and everybody's looked after. But, like, this kind of... um, it is a, it's a cycle isn't it so like we're trying to do well as professionals but really really, it's also about education so like people are coming through educational establishments where like effectively we still have crit systems how do we still have these like crit systems that are like super unsequated and people are literally like doing all nices the whole time like standing up absolutely exhausted putting their heart on a wall and then having it ripped straight back down again and then like and then when you bring people into the workplace then a a lot of practices doing the same thing and thinking this whole thing is acceptable. So yeah, like I think it's possible for architecture practices to change and like the LPF is a really good example of like people trying to make a difference and I totally agree with Tyrone about like the fact that we should be raising our fees and entering competitions which are based on quality over quantity in terms of fees. But at the same time, like we also need to change the entirety of our education system. It's like just because no women is uh, ever mentioned in the history of architecture doesn't mean that women haven't been involved in the history of architecture. So just because we've been doing crits in a certain way for like 100 years doesn't mean we should be still doing them like that. So we have like a totally broken system from the beginning, right the way through. And so there's a few practices and there's a few people trying to make a difference, but we also need like educate people in education, we need people at the bottom to be saying this isn't acceptable, we need us to be saying this isn't acceptable. It's like we all need to act together to make change because if you've come out of an abusive relationship, i.e. one which you had with your university, then you might be more susceptible to going into an abusive situation in work
7: surely.
1: I like that analogy. Um, Katie and Kurti, what what say the union?
7: Um, I just wanted to uh, speak to the kind of systematic Um, Abuse or uh, oppression that has been um, brought across architecture for, like you said, hundreds of years through the CRIT system, Um, and then coming out of architecture, and and you kind of just expect it, um, and you expect it from being a part one, being a part two, being a project architect, the whole way up until you own the practice, and then it's kind of like you've learnt how to run a business from the businesses that you've worked for and then you may then run it the same way and not think that anything's wrong because you think you've got to the top and so you're not being abused anymore and you've suddenly become the abuser Um, but it's great that there are practices that kind of break that cycle and break that kind of system that that has been in place for so long Um, especially with the London Practice Forum and the kind of charter that they've set in place that looks like something that's probably going to break the cycle. Um, but we do, I guess, need to start listening more to the people who are going through it rather than just the people who have already been through it and they've already made it to the top. And I think through uh, like so many things that have come up that it's usually the director's voice that gets heard and not so much the employee's voice. And once you've broken the cycle, it's very difficult to, to think of uh, how you felt when you were in it. Um, but when you start listening to the people who are still in it and um, who are kind of fighting to get out of it, and it's very difficult to get out of because there aren't very many practices that have broken it, um, then that's probably where we're going to start finding change. And I guess from the union's perspective, those are the people that we're talking to and dealing with and, and bringing their problems to the attention of their employers in RIBA. i just add to
2: that. Um, I think just to respond to Fiona's point, it, it is systemic, I personally believe it is entirely systemic, and everything. And I agree with Tayan that the change needs to come from the bottom up. All the pressures as you, that you've mentioned, as sort of directors of companies, I sort of perfectly understand them and empathise with them. And that's something coming from the top. And I think you need a union of workers that is purely driven from the bottom to act as a counterpower, and that's where you find the balance. So, as much as I'm totally on board with the LPF. Uh, and I support it, I think it's great that some practices are taking it seriously and want to improve the labour conditions of their workers. I still think that, you know, the union is all the more necessary, as opposed to keep this stuff in check, because you can never really, I suppose, trust the director level as much as they want to to improve things, because the pressure is coming from that side. So just to go with what Tyne was just saying, you know, it needs to be bottom-up, and as far as we're concerned, that's a union...
6: I have a a friend who's a a therapist, and he was working at uh, London Met um, as a counselor. And he's a good friend of mine, not in architecture whatsoever. And we're hanging out one night, and he says to me, he says, I have to ask you a question. He said, "Um, about 30% of the people that come to me at the university are architecture students. He said, can you tell me why that is? <laughs> and I was like, I was quite shocked. I mean, 30% of an entire student body is quite a high percentage. Now, the question of does, is there something in the type of person that goes to architecture? <laughs> yeah? Yeah. But no, I mean, I mean it's, it, like, it's worth questioning. Like, is there something about the type of person who doesn't, who doesn't feel like anything is perfect enough that's driven towards this field mixed with a field that actually tells you that nothing that you're doing is perfect enough? And so you have this kind of relationship that gets set up, I would say, early on in the education system that's quite, quite dangerous, actually. I, so anyway, that's kind of my...
1: Yeah, I mean, we did, um, we did a piece on kind of people's experiences and the, the mental health issues that people shared from their education was pretty shocking. I think we have a question from the floor. Do we need to pass you over a microphone? Are they roving mics? Yeah, shall I give you mine? Okay.
8: So just a quick question for any, anyone really on the panel um, or in the room. Um, I've worked in a couple of big practices and my experience is that there's some of the guys at the top are like, I'm a, I'm a great boss. I'm a really great boss. We work hard, we play hard, and everyone loves me, and I'm really great. And down below, on the lower levels, people are feeling abused and suffering and working really long hours. And so I was just wondering, if people don't know, I and mean, I guess maybe this is like all um, forms of abuse, if people don't know they're abusing, how do we let them know that it's not okay, and what they're doing, you know, and I just, I, how do we tackle that, and I think some of those top guys are not, not all of them are reading disease, I'm afraid, and so I don't know how, what? I don't know how we, I don't know how we get through to Surely them, I feel, like, I feel like from my limited experience, that, that might be a bit of an issue.
7: Um, I just wanted to, to speak to that quickly, as to, I don't understand how someone doesn't know, um, but that's obviously from the bottom. But, obviously, if you're underpaying the people that work for you and you're leaving the office at 7, for example, and there are still people sat at their desks working, and then the next morning they're still there, they're there super early. i see, I see
8: some of the old guys there till 3. Yeah. They think it's
7: cool and fun. How do they think that? Like, how, if, Obviously, even then, they're still not making enough money for that. Um, and I think it, it, it's... Really important to get the word out again through their employees coming to them from tribunals, grievances, people coming from the bottom, represented by a union, telling them that that's
1: abuse. I mean, I think for that, like, if they're staying really late, they probably have a partner at home who's making it work. And um, you know, I can only speak from like journalism, but I've got a friend at like a pretty big paper whose boss was kind of asking them like why can't you buy a house? And she was like, I don't earn enough. Like, you don't pay me enough for me to get a mortgage. Um, so I think some people, when you get to the top, when you've got a lot of money, you don't know how much money someone needs to stay alive. Uh, question. Okay.
7: It's tr- I think it's tricky as well, though, because like, it's easy to sort of say, you know, if someone's working late, that, that suggests a form of abuse. And I think in reality, things can be a lot more complex than that. I've, I think I've worked places where, like, I've been a boss where I've, and I've not in architecture, been in journalism again, but where I've seen people working late being like, guys, go home, like don't stay late. But then I also then worry that, you know, like what if, what if they're then like sort of feeling like they can't stay late to get something done and then they've got sort of maybe like deadlines that, that are kind of getting on top of them. So I do feel like these issues can be more complex and it's sort of, it's very easy to say like this thing, it definitely represents a form of abuse. And in reality, abuse comes in very many forms and I imagine exactly the same is the case in architecture.
3: I think, so there's, there's, two, there's sort of two things. There. I think there, it, there, it's a really pertinent question. How do you educate people who are, like, blind to something? And it isn't just staying late. It's also just a million and one microaggressions or different ways of, of, of treating people. And I'm quite sure that there are people who, don't know, who, who, really, who genuinely don't know what's happening. And and I I mean, we've we've grown fairly quickly to 30, and I can see... I don't don't want to step in something, because who knows? I might not know everything that's going on in my practice. I totally accept that. But I I feel like I know what's going on in my practice at the moment. But I can also tell that if we were double the size, it could very quickly get to the point where I didn't know what was going on in the practice. But I would hope that having participated in discussions like this, we would be able to set in place the processes whereby these things could be brought to our attention and we could address them in a like a useful way but I, I don't know how you would educate the people who haven't been participating in these discussions, I feel like it must be a media, some kind of, you know, the question of you know, the, the press the, 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 yeah, the, you
9: know. I, I've got kind of an, an anecdote which um, maybe brings it back into the what we're trying to do with the talk this evening about abuse in architecture I, I think some of the points are really interesting because it gets to um, some of the, the structural problems. I really welcome um, Katie and Curtie here um, today because I think my anecdote goes back to about 20 years ago or something. I'll name names. We were working for, for Harper Mackay, big office in Clerkenwell, got up to about 60 or 70 people. There was one summer do where somebody, and I won't name names, some of people here know who it was, basically got physically beat up by one of the partners. Because that person, he suspected of knowing about the affair he was having. Now, we had to split up the fight. The partner was drunk. He had a bit of a kind of um, problem with drink and physical um, moments and punching people and stuff like that. Now, this is 20 years ago. You didn't have the union. You didn't have the Park W stuff. You didn't have a lot more kind of attention to some of these mental health issues. But this was, in the essence, a mental health issue. In that scenario that you were talking about, Rob, the big boss type of scenario, there was a kind of structural thing there where instead of the carrot, it was always the stick. But the stick was complicated because the stick was a mythical stick because you felt as if you'd worked late in that place and showed you that you showed the bosses that you were you, you were um, um, staying in working late, making sure things get done often instructed at the last minute, which was a kind of form of abuse because it devalues the the, 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 the employee um, and that was a mythical stick which people kind of assumed that they would get in trouble if um, Um, they didn't work late, and I think that's right, what Fiona's saying, the working late thing is a complicated one people do it for all sorts of reasons, they'll do it because they feel as if they have to prove something, they feel as if they have to um, 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 enhance their career somehow but there's also that big worry, for me anyway, which we try to discourage anyone from working late in our office because there should be no fear, basically, and I think getting back to some of the points the speakers make, that kind of structural change of of understanding value and not being scared of it is important. Um, And and I'm kind of intrigued to sort of find out from the panel if there um, are ways to overcome that kind of fear of the structural problems of abuse in architecture. From the top down you know we're talking about the bottom up but to understand from the top down is important i think
6: i think so i mean i'm not a perfect boss by any means like i have my moments probably that are you know where the staff are like oh we work too hard that moment and it does happen yeah but i think part of it is, is if you create an open environment where someone feels that they can come and talk to you at any moment in time i mean within within reason because If you create that environment, then somebody can come and express that moment to you. But also, someone can express their creativity to you. So, by getting rid of that fear, you create a much more open space for creativity because actually people can express ideas which they might be too afraid to actually express because they're going to be told it's a stupid idea or that idea is worthless. But actually, some of those ideas that might be seemingly worthless might be a genius idea. And so you kind of have to get rid of that kind of... And and so that goes back to this issue of the crit, for one thing. Um, I think you also have an issue around time management, (laughs) which is a big issue. So for me, as a boss, we have one rule, which is, well, we have two rules, one which is no working on the weekends. And since starting the business for seven years, we've done three weekends, which is, I would say, not too bad. But the other rule is no splines, because if you do splines in complex geometry, you're going to be working on the weekend, so you can't do it, yeah. Um, But by establishing parameters within the practice and saying no weekends, it means everybody has to fit their time inside of the week. Um, Which is kind of a new idea to a bunch of people who are coming from architecture school, who've never been taught time management. So you have, this, you have this place that teaches you not to manage your time specifically. So then you go into practice and you're not managing your time. And you've got a boss telling you you've got a deadline. right? And so these two things start to collide together. So I think you have to fix this time management issue. That comes from people coming into practice, but also from owners. Like this idea of the last-minute change. Oh, this is like... This is the worst thing you can do. At 6 p.m., not look at something and then be like, okay, let's do a pin-up at 6 p.m. for something that's due first thing in the morning. Like, that's pretty pretty bad. However, I have moments as a, as a boss where I say, okay, let's do a review tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., we've got a deadline on Friday morning. And then the review doesn't happen until 6 p.m. because nobody's prepared. So you see, there's this kind of thing that goes on which is a balance between those those two things, so you have to educate the people, you have to create this open space, and then you have to remanage the time of the office as well I think so.
5: can, can I just I'm um, just come in on that point because i think like creating like good communication is obviously really key to running a successful business and i think on that it's also it's creating openness but also creating an opportunity for anonymous comments so like that like learning from other businesses you know the opportunities for for instance for work surveys where people can literally tell you what they think of you without putting their name on the bottom of it so nobody knows who's saying it but you can you can actually like get quite brutal feedback, which is really good because we're all, you know, we want constructive feedback. We want to be bettering ourselves as architects, as business owners, as people. Um, so so creating open and dialogue and community and good spaces for communication, but also giving people the opportunity to kind of feedback without without you knowing who they are. Um, and then the other thing is, and I suppose it leads from that, is that we're rubbish as a, as a profession at business in general. Like, there are a lot of people who are like, um, doing very kind of innovative things within other industries. And Fiona's touched upon tech companies. And when we're really not taught any of it in architectural um, education again. So at the moment, like it's all um, on business owners to basically learn how to manage a practice until they're big enough to employ somebody who might do some HR, might do some bookkeeping. So we're like, if you're a, enough just about business owner you might have conversations with other people you might take advice you might learn how to do a survey or like a Mailchimp thing and and hope that that will give you some good feedback but realistically we need to make sure that education is better in so many different ways it needs to be like it needs to be about business it needs to be about looking after people it needs to be a a better way of giving constructive feedback on design it needs to be about you know talking to each other in in a more um (laughs) humane way. So there's just so, so many things that education could be doing better.
1: Yeah, and I guess uh, also, if you give people feedback, you don't want to get punched for it. Um, I think we've got a question right over there in the corner. Yes, still? Uh, Do you want to chuck that mic down? No, no, right?
10: Uh, I'm an intruder, and I don't actually work in architecture, I work in advertising, so I feel privileged to be amongst you. But, um, so... I just had a question. So I've been working in advertising for 11 years and I've seen years of abuse. Um, But recently, in the last five to six years, I've seen a lot of new ways of working, adaptive ways of working, including uh, getting at eight, leave at four, getting at ten, leave at six. You must bring your dog to work. Um, I actually went to a recruitment consultant this morning who said a lot of jobs at the moment have a requirement can I bring my dog into work Um, so there are a lot of new ways especially in advertising those are some jokey ones but there are a lot of new ways in terms of how hours are balanced and how if you work over a certain period of time that is seen as a point of business failure not a point of success Um, I just wondered like how many of those new ways of working four day weeks have been applied to architecture you mentioned different industries but how is that kind of crunch time that you're talking about are you taking inspiration? Are you talking to other industries about it? Or? We,
9: we actually do. We just started trying to instill a four day week, but yeah. our staff said, ah, but it's not really because we're you work still five days. here and we're still involved in right. things that maybe are research oriented. But yeah. it's, it's the same point that Tyan's making, mm. but time management, I think, mm. is very key. Yeah. It's, think, it's, a,
10: it's yeah. a culture thing as well, right? Like yeah. you mentioned earlier, of the how the actual culture works. If people are working in 10, 11 at night, is that seen as a problem or is that seen as the standard status yeah. quo? So, are you kind of seeing those different uh, yep. uh, inklings of change in that? Or?
3: I'm, I won't say that we've gone to a four day week. We've got some, a member of staff or more here, so <laughs> we, we haven't yet. But it f- seems as if flexible working is the way that we have to, the kind of holy, probably the sort of the way that we, the direction and travel that we need to be going in. There's a, a whole load of steps that we probably need to achieve before we can get there, which is about time management and about accountability, um, and about setting goals uh, for and sp- around specific tasks for members of staff, and then supporting them to achieve those goals, um, and then recording and acknowledging when they have achieved those goals. And so once, once you can do that, it doesn't really matter whether they're working in the office or not in the office if you, if you are able to set a structure where you know what everybody should be doing. But I think it's, I really think there's a lot of business laziness in architecture and people not really learning about how to run a business. And the, the time management thing is massive. The, um, yeah, Sarah, your point about reviews. We instigated a type of review last year where... The questions weren't that specific, but you could plot the answers and see whether your staff were in the burnout zone or in the... I can't remember what the zone was, but the zone, you know, the amazing zone, the zone of feeling supported, challenged, and all of those things. But, you know, and you, you, could, you, could, you could tell where, the, where, where people were and without them having to say, we think you're a shit boss. Um, so,
11: yeah. Can, these you, can I say better. a quick thing about... Time management just because I think that's sorry i 'm right here, <laughs> I just grabbed the mic because um, I think that 's a really important one, and I th- think it 's quite interesting that it actually filters down from from talking to the client all the way to the last person last intern who's going to who's going to stay until four o 'clock in the morning, and I think that I think we've been quite bad at saying to the client, what do you want? What are the deliverables? And you want that in that period of time? And basically agreeing to things that we know as a business can't, simply can't be done in the time frame that we've been given. And, and you know what, what is that resistance to actually saying to the client, that's lovely, we'd love to be involved in this particular project, but actually looking at resources and the way we want to run the business, that's going to take us another two weeks? Or like, is there any flexibility in your programming? And pushback kind of happening at that level, as well as actually that intern who, be it, and I know time management is obviously something that maybe one gains with experience and knowing themselves and how fast they work or how well they work in certain circumstances, but actually turning around to the boss and not being like, okay, I'm going to be here all weekend, but say, actually, that's not, I can't do that in this period of time. Can we do this much? Or basically, I'm capable of doing this much. Is that acceptable? which then maybe might bring the conversation of, okay, but we need more, so then how can we get that to happen? We need more people, we need more time, we need more. I feel like I've always experienced, and even in myself, and maybe that's part of the sort of architecture culture, this real resistance to question deliverables, the equation of deliverables with time. And I just wonder if anyone's kind of
6: seen a different side of that in the industry. I've, I think, like, maybe I, um, I'll put on my old hat, But basically, back when you did hand drawings, you could only do a certain number of drawings to produce. And you had to really pre-think exactly what you were going to do and then enact it. And in this digital age where we can draw everything, people come in and they want to draw everything. And you really have to kind of tighten the, the knot on that issue to kind of be really strategic about what you produce in order to get across what you're trying to explain. And on that, I would also say is within the practice, so in that time management thing, I'd say we're really good at time management when it comes to the production side of things. We know exactly how long that's going to take. But when it comes to the design side of things, we're like, no, this process cannot be, you know, it cannot be structured. This has to be loose. I have to feel free. I have to feel all these certain things. And that's going to blow your time out. So actually... I've been trying to look at processes around actually how do you design so that you can actually start simplifying that process, removing conflict between multiple people because you get a lot of conflict at that moment in time as well about ownership of ideas and all these types of things. So I think the same thing that you do creatively can be... I mean, the same thing that you do in production can be applied across into the creative process as well. And there's a lot of really good examples in other industries where they're doing that through, like, the idea of the design sprint or other type of format. So I think looking at other businesses, as you're saying, is really super important.
1: I think also there we like time management and clearly like every architect needs to go on a time management course but there also has to be the kind of thing that you can't just constantly self-improve and be like maybe your boss wouldn't abuse you if you just managed your time better um, but question over there in the brown shirt Can we get a microphone over thank you um, is it on make sure it's like pushed up push up the button
12: yeah um, thanks just to uh, push back a little bit on some of the stuff that people said like a couple of you mentioned like oh like look at the tech industry, stuff like that. But um I'm a, I work in architecture, but looking at some stuff in the tech industry and some things you hear about it, like there are a lot of a lot of horrible issues there where people are working non-stop, they're being exploited, they're being um they're in work for so long and they're supposed to stick up to these kind of the same stuff that their Silicon Valley weird bosses want them to do like only drink like fuel and then work for 20 hours a day and then sleep for four. Um, So it's not exactly like we can look necessarily to other industries and say that they're doing better and it's, oh, it's just, it's again looking into it and going like, oh, but we're different, we're architects. Whereas there are ways, definitely ways that we can manage to, you know, have people in jobs where they feel comfortable and they are happy. So I think it's not necessarily that other industries are better. Better. It's more of like a issue throughout them, I guess. I think. I think.
5: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I totally hear what you're saying because I think like the issue. So. Uh, the reason I suggest, and I think some of us have suggested that we want to look at other industries, is that architecture is a really ancient industry. Like, we've been going for so long that, like, these, are be- these kind of practices of abuse have become ingrained in the way that we operate as professionals and educators and peers. And um, actually, so if we're looking at the tech industry, it's because they're a, it's a fairly novel industry and saying, oh, is there anything we can learn from them? So it may be that, yeah, they might not have the right answer and there's probably a lot of bad things going on there as well. But I think the most important thing we can be doing for ourselves is actually just questioning the way we practice, looking for better models of, around which we can kind of model architectural practice. And so, yeah, tech m- might be the wrong place to look, but as long as we're still questioning, I think we've got a chance.
7: <laughs> um, can, I, oh, sorry. can I just quickly ask a question to Sarah and Fiona um, just about the London Practice Forum? I just wanted to know how you're going to uh, apply the 40-hour working week across different uh, offices in the way of... Is there is it going to work in the same way as uh, uh, EU work time directives um, on a rolling basis? Uh,
3: it's not a form of legislation, I guess, is the sort of straightforward answer. And it's also... I think the wording is... Actually, extremely loose, and I think it's probably the kind of wording that most—I don't know, maybe may, from what I'm hearing, maybe not as many as I think. But it seems like a fairly straight, a fairly sensible wording to us, which is that this 40-hour working week is standard. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we never work more than those numbers of hours, but we don't expect that on a on a regular basis by any stretch of the, you know by any means. So how it's a, a, applied is that we all need, it's, and it's not going to be policed. But this is what we all agree to, and we.
13: Mm -hmm.
3: you know, we hold each other to task, I think, and and we report on overtime as well. So...
5: Um, I think um, the EU working time directive um, sets itself as an average. So it says, I think it's like 17 weeks. So basically it's not like, did you work more than 40 hours this week in the London Practice Forum? Oh no, you're not conforming and we must get kicked out. It's over a period of time. So it accepts the fact that there are deadlines, there are certain pushes and, and maybe one week you've got to get something out and so you work a little bit longer. We're professionals when it's not necessarily a nine to five, we've got to discharge our duties. But what you don't want to be happening is and again it's not a legislation is but if we're to follow a kind of model that's loosely based around the european working time directive it would be more seen as an average so you don't want people to be doing that week in week out you want to basically have an average that sits at the lower end that sits um in line with what the lpf ethical charter sets out but accepting that, as professionals, on occasion we have deadlines.
3: And the fact that we have pub made it public that means that we can be held accountable by the people who work for us.
7: Can I just add an extra question onto yeah. the end? Um, as to as you said that you the London Practice Forum aren't going to police kind of the practices that are within the London Practice Forum. Does that mean that if a practice in the LPF steps out of line or is abusing their uh, workers, they won't be removed from? The, the group. I,
3: I, I probably can't speak kind of unanimously for it because it's a it's a kind of collaborative collegiate group of people who've who've made decisions together. And at the moment, I can't sort I can't quite imagine things might change in the future. But at the moment, because it's a it's a kind of active intention, it's, it's hard to see a situation where that would occur. But it could occur, um, and I imagine that they would there would. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't answer exactly what the answer, what that would be, okay. and, I, and I think. But I, I think, to some extent, it doesn't. Perhaps it doesn't matter. You know, I think they will be held to task by their by their own organisation.
5: Yeah, I totally agree. It's the bottom-up thing again. So it's an aspirational charter, not a law. Reba, also, by the way, has a set of like absolute like um, rules and regulations by which one must abide, one of which is adequately resourcing projects. Should people be kicked out of Reba if they're actually abusing their members of staff? Perhaps, yes. Yeah, I they mean, should, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like so, like, I mean, and that is a real actual charter that you're signing up to. And so, like, the LPF is brilliant and aspirational, but it also relies upon as Fiona said, people within our organizations to hold us to account. We're going to, like, as a practice, I can speak on behalf of um, me and my co-directors, we'll try our absolute hardest to make sure that that is the case within our practice, and I'm sure it's the same across the board, but at the same time like, we want people to tell us off if we're doing something wrong. We will.
14: (laughs) Something that's coming, just over here, sorry, Um, something that seems to be coming out of everything that everyone's saying is that on one hand we have students who have no understanding of what their time is actually worth money wise and then we have bosses who um, maybe are undervaluing the work that they produce to their clients or allowing that undervaluing to happen and um, it just feels like we should be monitoring um, the kind of work that we do and the kind of costs associated to it more carefully. Something that we've recently introduced in my practice is like a simple excel sheet where we input the um, fee that we've um, charged for a project and we break it down um, for each different stages and um, associate it to the sort of hourly fee of different members of the the practice, who are going to be working on it, and that allows us to have an understanding of how much profit can be generated on the project based on the amount of hours that will be done, and suddenly you have a situation where that's shared amongst all members of the practice, and so you have part ones and part twos and architects and you know associates and directors who are all part of the same conversation about... Um, what, what are we worth and, and able to then make decisions. I mean, sometimes there are projects where we accept that we're going to do a very small amount of profit because, you know, it's, it's, it's a love child and we just really want to pump money, like, pump time into it. But sometimes we know that we can actually charge a little bit more and actually we're very efficient with our time and we've, we've um, broken down the kind of, the, the elements that we understand can um, can be done very efficiently because we've done them time and time again to allow us to have more time for, for example, the design part where actually we do need to, to plan um, flexibility because, yeah, sometimes you do, like, one test and two tests and three tests and it's just still not working and then eventually you get there, but you know that, like, just, I think it's just, like, making that information available to everyone in the practice and everyone being part of that conversation is really how we start changing this the, this understanding of what we're worth because actually we just we don't we're not taught that at it's university hard. and and we don't have it's your practice. it is the practice i work for yeah sure the uh yeah i think so yeah i mean there's so so we're yeah i mean so we we all keep track of our our actual time, <laughs> um, and we input that actual time, not just the time that we, you know, supposedly charge, because obviously we charge for like a day, but we're working longer than a day, so we, we, we input the actual hours that we've worked, and we have an actual cost associated to that, and we have the actual fee that we, you know, see from the actual uh, letters that have been exchanged with the clients, and yeah, they, I mean, it's small practice, so I, I can see how that becomes more difficult when it's do
1: you know how much everyone in your practice earns?
14: I don't. You should I ask. Think, yeah. You should ask your bosses. Yeah. That should be
1: part yeah. of the conversation.
14: No, I agree. I actually think that would be, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, we've got a couple of people over in the corner. Should we have, like, a run of questions from you three? Uh,
15: yeah, I've got, like, one really quick point and one provocative question. So my quick point is someone said earlier that how do we compete when some practices are abusing the 48-hour week uh, working time directives? And I would say that, like over a forty-eight-hour working week, no one is efficient. Like I know I've got a friend who works like forty hours overtime a week, but you c- you cannot produce more work a- after a certain point, right? And then the provocative question is: Isn't the problem that bosses exist altogether, and that actually we should be moving towards practices that are more democratic and like worker-controlled? Um, because actually, it's the power imbalance which creates. Uh, a structure where abuse can happen.
6: Can I I answer that just quickly? This is my current struggle. Um, There's one thing. Six hours is the maximum efficiency that a person can do in a day, pretty much hands down. So when you work at these practices that are working 48 hours a week, and I've worked at them. I've worked 100 hours a week. Everyone's on Facebook all the frickin' time. It's, it's a total lie. I mean, even at architecture school, like, oh, I was up all night. Well, you didn't start until 3 p.m., you ding-dong. Like, it's, there's such a myth around this, like, oh, I worked such a long schedule, right? And there's this rewarding for this behavior, which is really toxic. So this needs to stop. In terms of hierarchical models of practice, so I'm struggling with it currently because I'm trying to establish a less hierarchical form of practice, and it's really difficult because actually it's put a lot of strain onto me as a practice owner, right? (laughs) Because trying to figure out what that system looks like to not be hierarchical, but that's really is about mentorship Yes, this is what we're doing. We're trying to design a system now which is basically looking at mentorship and actual human qualities that one can rely on the next person and understand that this is the person to go to for that certain thing. But designing that system is quite, it's intensive and so I mean we're trying to do it but it's really difficult when you have always come from hierarchical models. I mean. The first thing I did when I left my old practice was, like, I will not have job titles anywhere near my practice. So no one can have a job title because, actually, job titles are toxic to actually creating that hierarchical system and actually creating this system of kind of patting each other on the back, of doing things for the boss. I mean, I've seen my boss get foot rubs, for fuck's sake,
9: you know?
6: Was <laughs> so your boss Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> it, was, it was a woman.
9: <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I, sorry, um, India, I've, I've maybe got a, a, an example of uh-huh. that type of workplace where um, this young gentleman talked about, about having a kind of um, different setup. up um, My father took over an engineering company. It was a family business that came up from nothing. Um, in the 50s and 60s after the unions didn't protect my granddad in the mining industry because he was foreign he set up a tool making practice and then it got into a very stagnant period where the people running it after my granddad passed were treating all the work staff and workers in a very abusive way yeah? they weren't valued at all It goes back to that kind of um, Marxist kind of thing about, you you know, when you're talking about labour and the value of labour and the purpose of living as a worker. What my dad did, he took some advice and thought, how can I change that? And what what he did was he got rid of the bosses. He took all the bosses who were controlling the the workers and the orders and the, the customers and got rid of them, fired them. And then he gave people on the shop floor responsibility. Some excelled and bubbled up to the top, and some suffered and moved on. They couldn't really have the personalities to deal with it. But it succeeded. And for you know another 30, 40 years, it worked very well, on the premise of getting rid of those kind of boss-type manager mentality that didn't value the working people. It works. It can work. I think in architecture. I've not seen it work in architecture, I've seen it tried but I think there's inherent problems partly to what Tyne's talking about but also partly to do with the fact that you need people to really take responsibility by the horns and really be up for it because it's hard out there that what I was saying earlier about the structure from the client down, that's where the problems are and that's where bosses often in a knee-jerk way can start abusing staff, and so they're getting abused themselves from a a system of developers or clients who are controlling their life, and it's a hard one. You need people to come up from the bottom up with a lot of energy and a lot of drive and a lot of um, willingness to take on responsibility, in my view.
1: Don't you think, like, architecture, like, personally, as an industry, and I'm kind of an outsider as well as a journalist, there have been, like, radical collectives that have operated with a more kind of flat hierarchy like we like yeah you guys are like really radical thinkers there's there's lots of people that can do it but I agree that when you bump up against the system of developers and clients then you might have trouble uh, another Can question just, Ooh, just no? really Go quickly, there have
5: been those non-hierarchical people but just coming back to the point on education nobody talks about them so yeah of course everybody knows Assemble Brilliant they're great and they're doing something slightly different in terms of the way they run the practice but there's collectives like Matrix who are amazing like feminist collective in the 1980s who are basically doing that they work together to make so socially, like, uh, valuable architecture in a way that was totally breaking the mould. So let's not forget that history of architecture isn't fully written at the moment, and that there's a lot... The gaps in our knowledge, mine very much included, and this is what Part W is setting out to do, is to try and find all these people, all these amazing things that have been happening in between, and those are the things that we
13: can learn from. Sorry, could I just... um... (laughs) Um, So... I think one of the things that um, happens in the industry is that most of the blame is kind of pushed towards education. But being someone that hasn't um, spent that much time away from education, one of the things that I found that is great in education is that um, it's flat and you you can have a conversation with anyone about any idea and it is valued. Whereas my first experience going into practice has been that until you go through that system of getting your accreditation, you kind of don't really exist, and your ideas are not really worth... Um, and this is, you know, we talk about the long hours, but this is part of the abuse, this is where I've been told things like, oh, when did you get your part three again, remind me? And it's, you know, it kind of devalues anything I say, because that's kind of, well, you're not accredited, so you're not allowed to talk. And um, I think there are good things that education does that the industry needs to pick on as well. And um, providing an atmosphere where conversation can happen is one of those things, and valuing people for as individual thinkers. And you know, we talk about other industries and such as the tech industry, and one of the things that they do well again is that everyone's valued based on their experience and skills. You know, you have all these startups that um, doesn't revolve around directors managing people, but people kind of being used for or people allocated with within um, what's suitable and what they can achieve well and which in turn benefits the company they work for and also, you know, people feel better valued and hence more motivated to work. So, you know, I think we should also talk about that area of abuse as well.
1: Anyone kind of wanted to speak to that or...? I mean... I do I like agree that there's some good things about tech, but I do think that there's some seriously abusive practices going on there. Like Elon Musk sleeps under his desk um, in the corner. Um, I just wanted to start by the first
4: thing that made me want to say something was you saying about um, bosses mm-hmm. also being sort of a um, director also being in the office. Um, I guess the first thing is that if you're a part one and you're on London Living Wage, which is, I mean, most of my peers aren't, um you're very quickly earning less than living wa- earning less than minimum wage the more overtime you do so it's very th- sort of qualitatively different if your boss is staying later who's earning probably three times the amount as you um but i guess brought up by this these sort of questions about um i guess Workers having rights and, and not enjoying their work or being being overworked and those sorts of things and resourcing and these new sort of the LPF and things like that. I'm curious. You're asking sort of you're encouraging people to come forward. You're saying, oh, we want to be open um, and create an environment where people can um, come to us. But the thing is, obviously, if you're in a precarious position in your workplace um, in terms of you know you're being hired to do something. I guess it's less about providing a situation where people feel safe to do that, but actually creating a space that is explicitly for that. So, for example, when resourcing at work in my workplace, I'm not asked, can you do this? I'm asked, how long will it take you to do this? And that is brought into the fees and brought into everything, rather than me having to say, oh, no, sorry, I can't do that, which immediately puts me in a position where I'm saying I'm not capable, rather than my employ- you know, someone trying to retry that have you ever tried to do what oh no I just I'm, I'm asked how long will it take me I, no 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 I'm asked how long will it take me and I say it will take me this amount of time but what I'm saying is that most of my peers who work and work it's much more you're given an amount of time to do it and then you have to be the one to respond saying, no, that's not possible. And what I'm suggesting is I'm wondering how, in terms of monitoring as as business owners, how, these, how people like the LPF are approaching, making sure that things are feasible, since we're talking about this idea that employers don't know what's going on. I'm curious how that sort of monitoring is going to happen over and above, just saying, oh, people have put in their timesheets that they've been working till 7. I'm curious how sort of processes will be put in place for that sort of, you know, monitoring of sort of collectively deciding how long something is going to take by asking the people who are doing those sorts of types of work how long it will take.
2: Can I just add a quick point to your question which leads on to that? Because we've talked earlier about uh, bosses not being aware that they're abusive. The, The reverse is true. You find a lot of... Junior people not realizing that they're being abused in the first place, and that's almost the bigger problem, I think. So um, when you when you talk about creating safe spaces for your employees and these boxes where you can make comments, at, that's all fine. But when people don't know that they're being abused in the first place, there's obviously a limit to that system. So yeah, that was me.
5: Um, communication, I think, is it, again is, it, it's really difficult because if if I was I would mean, if anybody is abusing an, uh, their, one of their employees, like they're probably not going to be the sort of person who's sitting down with them and asking them uh, whether they're okay and if they feel like they've had adequate resource allocated to a project. So it, it is really... I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, but I think... Um, like again like as a practice as we grow like trying to like come up with resourcing systems that involve people so that um it's not just a top-down system so we're saying you've got you know x many days to produce this it's a conversation we say you know this is what the like exactly as um the lady over there was saying but basically like if we can have a conversation that sets out with somebody what a reasonable period of time is for getting that work done then then that's obviously the best way of doing it because everybody's complicit in it also it sets standards because the other thing is like in order to be a practice that continues to work you have to turn a profit you have to make money to pay your team and it is not an efficient way of running projects to have people working thousands and thousands of hours of overtime because we look at the hours we don't look at like you know and you're marrying that up against a fee and it quickly quickly drops to like you know pounds per hour if if you're mismanaging a project so we're not interested in that none of our team's interested in that i'm sure it's shared across the board here so it has to be a conversation it has to be well managed and it's something that we all have to learn to do better
6: there's also there's also an element of trust also i think so basically i mean uh, i i've been doing this long enough that i know how long things take i mean that's just that's a given fact like I can tell you how long certain types of drawings should take. I can put together a resource plan. And sometimes my staff are like, how did you do that? How do you know? And I'm like, well, I've been doing this for a long time, so I know how to do it. So, but you have to have an element of trust with the people that are higher up and say, hey, this person might know more than me, and that you feel that you can lean on that person to find out. So if you don't know, why, say, say, why do you think it's going to take that long? or to ask the question that's more specific around how do you know that or you know try to get some insight into that so that you actually learn from that process because you know i mean you know a lot of times people say oh i can't do it that quick and i'm like well how are you going to do it because if you're going to do it a really long roundabout way you can't do it that way but if you need help from me to get you there from a to b quicker i can help you with that so you have to have that kind of like that space where you can like trust the person that you're there, but the people have to be willing to teach also within that process and not just kind of throw you out into the dark. I mean, you know sink or swim can be very good as well i don't want to say don't do that, but also like there has to be an element of support, I think Hello,
16: yeah um, so just as someone who when through is all just being at the bottom of the food chain in a practice being an intern being a part one even sometimes a part two it would be great if the change would start from bottom up but as someone whose kind of self confidence has been undermined for years at university during the process of quits during just kind of people being generally savage with you, how do you gain the kind of willpower to come up to your boss and saying, actually, what you do to me is not okay? Because I know that I've got a lot of friends, I mean, I don't work in architecture anymore, but I used to, but I know I've got a lot of friends who say to me, I know I'm being abused, but there's not much I can do about it, right? Because I'm a part one. And then when I get higher up, then there will be something I can do, about it. And that's just how things are. So how do you gather you know, the courage to go up to your boss and say, actually, I don't think this is okay?
17: Um, I've worked as an architect for years but I've just set up a practice but I also worked as an office manager for a company for a year and a half and I did everything, I was the only admin staff in a company of 30 people and um, in relation to that um, has anyone ever had an interview and asked for the policies of the company up front um, so that they can make a decision about, you know, are they applying to a good company, do they even know what policy they have, do they have to tell their boss they're pregnant before, you know, they've actually seen the maternity policy And there's a bunch of systems out there in other organisations, particularly um, business in the community, who's been campaigning for years and years on social issues across the board for women, um, for business, for workers' rights. And we're not referencing them. We're architects, we're businesses, we're not looking that way. And the fight has to come from the bottom, I agree, but it also has to come from the directors. You know, I'm bored of the word statutory. Like, I see it in every blooming policy. It's, like, statutory maternity pay, statutory this, that. Because I just went to, you know, gov.com and I just wrote it down because that was about as much research as I could be bothered to do. And um, if you actually look at things like statutory maternity pay, like, you can better it in so many ways and it does not cost your company a thing, you know. Um, And with relation to working hour rights, like did you sign away your rights in your contract before you even read your policy? Um, Did you, you know, what what are you doing to kind of self-check yourself? And I agree that teaching is like, you know, it's not helping us, but can you really expect to go to a job and, you know, just work on the project that you love every single hour of the day without doing a little bit of admin on the side? Like, does anyone ever think about splitting out the managerial role amongst all their staff? Because so people go all the way up through the industry, and they get to the top, and they go, oh, I'm really annoyed. I can't do any design anymore. But like, why has no one bothered to think about their design roles and their admin roles and measure the time they spend on admin and separate out their marketing roles to the, you know, the rest of their business? Um, so this is something that I'm really fighting for, and I've been talking to the Part W Collective this morning about, and um, I really would encourage you all to look at policy Even look at ISO 9001, really study it. Because although it's full of jargon that's absolutely awful to read, the um, essence of running a good business is there. And it's about responsibility, accountability, making sure you can hold everyone accountable and everyone has a role. And that role doesn't have to be a traditional job role. It can be a role on a document to report on events and competitions weekly to the members of your staff. Um, And I think there's a whole new way we should be practising. Basically.
15: Yeah, it's just really interesting that point you made about okay. interesting me about the point about accountability. And it's like I've heard a lot of like talk tonight about like my practice, the practice I work for. Or like, you know, the idea is like no one really wants to kind of get to the point and say who they want to work for. It's like what kind of agency do I have as a part one? It's like if someone's a shit employer, tell people. Like the conversation that we had when I initially approached India, she talked about the shitty architecture men list which was an anonymous, yeah, which is a very famous kind of thing. And we're talking about how architecture really hadn't had its me-too moment in the same way, because I think that list got took down. I can't remember what, for what reason or whatever. Lible. Holy libelous. Holy libelous, that kind of thing. But you know, so, you know, you're saying what kind of action can you have as a part one person or a student going in, or even like somebody who's worked for a practice previously? It's like, could you not simply just say... That practices shit don't work for them? And that's your collective action right there. And use like the internet and social media to facilitate that.
5: Um, there's also um Adam and Nathaniel Furman who did hashtag um I think it was archie slavery um, anyway, he was trying to shame practices that like particularly had unpaid interns and got people to like actually like post them and did an entire Instagram feed on that and it was like pretty much disgusting um and and really important because the point is, is that if we're all like kind of like celebrating these practices for like doing really great architecture, they really need to have, at the very minimum, a base level of care for their stuff.
1: Although then the shaming system has to work. So I've talked about this with Patrick Schumacher, and he seems pretty immune to shame. Um, question <laughs> over there?
6: I'm going to agree with that.
1: <laughs> if you push it all the way up, um, then it...
18: I think it is. I yeah, it is, there uh, you go. I'm going to make a slightly sweeping set of statements, and then I'm going to give a little bit of semi-scientific justification for that. Um, I've been uh, fortunate to be in a position in a very big practice where I was able to... I worked for Capita. So I had access to about a 1,000 people, and I managed to persuade 60 of them to anonymously do a Briggs-Mayor. So can I ask a question? Who's done a Briggs-Mayor psych test on themselves?
1: Me. Uh, it's like the kind of like personality categories test thing. This could be like interesting. For those who've done it, sort of thing.
18: what I discovered was that we collectively fall roughly into two groups. There's the ENTJs and there's the INFPs. You might be a variation on that, but the groups typically split 50-50. ENTJs are a very distinct set of people. They run businesses. They create... They are dictatorial, and sorry, E N T J, emotional, knowledgeable, thinking, judging, psychopath. <laughs> Timing is everything. The other group is the uh, is the I N F P, which is more intellectual, knowledgeable, feeling, perceiving. Basically,
1: is that the you campaigner one? 'Cause they've also got like names.
18: They're a little bit yeah, I can't yeah. remember the specifications. Oh, I think it, I'm it's that the one. it's the it's the downtrodden one, basically. They're they're obsessive, they're particular, they're hard working, they're dedicated, but they're also gullible. And they fall for what the psychopaths tell them. What was awful was that I did it myself and I discovered I'm a psychopath. <laughs> and I'm completely comfortable with that. But I changed the way I dealt with people around me. And it's worked quite well. So some of it is about knowing yourself. And architects have a habit of thinking they listen really hard to everyone else. And very seldom do we analyse ourselves.
1: I think that kind of goes to what Tayan was saying about uh, the 30%. Like, you know, what is attracting people to architecture and how is that building this system? Was there no? another question? Can- yes?
19: I think a little bit that leads on to... So sort of the bigger picture as well, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, within practice and architects and architects. But there's a, the elephant in the room is really the... I mean, we've got a QS who sits a couple of desks away from us, shares office space, and he says, it's a pretty nasty industry, this, isn't it? You know, the building industry. It's pretty uh, a voracious, profit-driven, aggressive, angry uh, industry. And I think it takes architects a long time maybe because of our education, to get to grips with that very point. I'm all f- in favour of, actually, the transparency within practice because I think it does people benefit to understand the game they're in. I think a lot of time, you know, uh, bosses uh, are in a role where they're trying to keep an office going, they make decisions for whatever, for good or bad, and that filters down and creates creates uh, unrest problems and bad, maybe bad practice. Um, but the more people who are aware of the, the picture, I mean, my, my biggest thing is who is protecting the architectural industry within that aggressive you know the ideas don't drive buildings money does for the most part um so who's in charge of the money it's certainly not architects should we be in charge of the money or should actually there be codes of conduct for fee scales um not undercutting each other i mean this has been a race to the bottom in terms of competitive fees um there's a lot that architects do to themselves and have done to themselves at the very top, which then just filters right through practice to uh, sort of manifest itself in uh, some of the ways that have been talked about this evening. Sorry, can I just say um,
8: one really quick thing? It's not like a point, but just um, someone earlier on was saying that uh, uh, they just made a a comment and they said, oh, and because my boss earns three times the amount I do, um, I've been in a big practice where one of the bosses has said, was very proudly said to me, I only earn eight times more than the lowest person. So, if you think your boss is earning three times more than you, try and find out what they're really earning.
1: And then you've got to think about what the developer or the, kind of the owner of the big real estate company that's hiring you is earning, because that is some serious profits there. Uh.
3: I think that was an interesting question, though. Why... So, I... We had to use a lawyer, and... Uh, he told me his hourly rate. And he was a very, and it was a convincing lawyer. He was a very, very middle of the road lawyer. It was about, it was 250 pounds an hour. Um, there aren't many architects who can charge themselves out at 250 pounds an hour, but why don't these other, why doesn't av- so advertising, man who was in advertising, has just left.
17: Just
3: left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> why, why, why are we, why are we undercutting, why are we undercutting each other?
19: So this is, this is a mm.
3: yeah, yeah, so there's a, there's a protection.
19: Because otherwise, everybody's in a commercial environment. I mean, everybody works in a commercial environment, but why do some people protect each... You know, and I think this is where they... You know, is it the ROBA? Is it the ARB? You know, This is architect on architect at the highest level. Mm-hmm. You know, We've talked about it with uh, you know, uh, competitions and people entering those and yeah. big practices going for competitions that they know small practices are going to go for. There's this kind of big yeah. dog-eats-little-dog uh, kind yep, of uh, ex- exactly. world. Exactly. There's a
3: kind of competitiveness of, you know, we're, we're better, we should earn more, maybe. But, but the, the advertising one is an interesting one, right? I know people who work in advertising, and they, first of all, they, they, they protect their earnings very carefully. They, they ram home to their clients the metrics around what the value that they will deliver will give to them, and they will stick to them. And actually they're probably bullshit, most of them. They're probably kind of made up, but the industry absolutely like, never undermines that. That is what props up that industry.
5: Totally agree. And so we're just kind of paralyzed by with our inability to demonstrate value. Like, what actually are we offering to a project? Like, I mean, and because we charge our fees quite often on a, on a percentage of the construction costs, quite often, particularly, like, um, residential clients, but across the board, people think that architects are in it to try and inflate construction costs to inflate their fees. That's not where our value is. So how do we demonstrate what we're actually bringing to the table? Like, we need to all come together to do that.
6: I think you need, a, you need a vocabulary, and you need to kind of start understanding the vocabulary. So has anyone in here ever been told, um, just do it for the love of what you do? I mean, how many times? I mean, there's so many other sayings, you know, like money doesn't matter. You know, all architects come from money. You know, there's all these different myths that get kind of passed on again and again. So have you guys ever heard of what's called a money blueprint? Yeah, It's this idea that like, you're set with a money blueprint and you'll never pass that blueprint that you have because of what you've been told from the time that you were a child. So basically, if you've been told from the time that you're a child that you're going to be poor, you're going to be poor. You might win the lottery. 70% of lottery winners lose out all. Yeah? So if you're told this money blueprint within the field of architecture as well, and you're told that what you do does not have value, that you're not valuable, that it's not about money, I mean, you're going to continue living that life of not have, asking for more money. So then you end up saying, oh, we don't get paid enough fees and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, that's, a, that's the victim, yeah? So you actually have to start shifting that, that entire conversation within the profession because it's not about people not paying you enough. Yep. It's about you not, not asking, asking for enough.
3: Yep. One of the first things I was told in business is that you can never charge too much. And it wasn't that, it was because someone will tell you, you know, you'll find out soon enough if you're charging too much. So just go for it. You know.
7: Can I add that um, when we're speaking again about different industries and looking at different industries and the way that they use their fee, fee skills, um, at the same time that we came up as a section of architectural workers, um, around about the same time, a legal worker union also started within UVW. Um, and uh, uh, graphics and, and communications and things like that union which would, which would cover advertising and law and so when we're looking at other industries we also have to acknowledge the fact that in the economy that we're in we're all a bit effed um, and yes like some people are, are doing well in that but um, just looking outside of architecture isn't going to fix architecture we've got to look at the people who are in it um, at the minute. And again, to a question that a lady asked back here a minute ago um, when she said that when she was going through part one and part two and in internships, she felt uh, small and uh, left architecture afterwards. That's the, the state that we were all in whenever we started the union. We felt angry and small and we were students, we were part ones, we were part twos, we were getting qualified and, and we didn't want to work in a world where this is the way we were treated in architecture, or this is the way that we had to run business, so this is the way that we had to ask for fees. And so, again, I think you asked how, how do you uh, feel strong or feel enthusiastic, and this is the way that we went about doing that. Um, and, again, I hope that this can, can put other people on the path to, to feeling more strong within architecture, knowing that there's a body backing them.
5: Um, yeah, like, it's so nice to know that this exists now, like having gone through Part, particularly in like part one and part two roles where like literally I would do all nighter after all nighter working for a practice that just spewed out competitions and then was told that I wasn't allowed to go to sleep because I was the person who was handing in like the hard copy so I had to hold my hand like pushing my thumb into my hand so that I didn't fall asleep so that I could walk around the corner to hand it in for hours and so like if you come from that background and you don't have like groups like this amazing groups like yeah it's really difficult to have a voice because I wasn't about to stand up and be like oh by the way this isn't acceptable um so like yeah like our route through like our generation has been like like try and set up a practice that's doing something better and it's a quite conventional route to to trying to fix it but like that's the that's the kind of top down route and the bottom up route I just really appreciate the fact that that is like just like totally complementary and these two things coming to the center I think is just the best way forward.
1: I think that's a really good note to end it on. It's really good to hear bosses welcoming a union. And I hope everyone does go and join the union and also continues this conversation because I think if this, like, last hour and a half has shown, like, there's a lot to be said in it. A lot of people have got, like, a lot of good ideas and the industry really needs to change if it's going to get better for the people in it. Um, So, yeah, thanks, guys, for having us. Thank you, panellists, for opening yourself up to some, like, big questions And yeah, enjoy the rest of your Negronis and pasta.
0: Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.